Hello, everybody. I'm Tom Dorsey. And I'm Ben Jones. And this is Wednesday's podcast. And to me, this is a very special podcast. We are with uh, Joseph Rosello and Bill Uchimoto. And we're going to tell a story that no one has ever wanted to tell. And I have tried to get a number of people to tell this story, but they just, nobody will do it. So I finally decided, let's do it ourselves. Um, this, is the, this podcast is all about how the first exchange-traded fund ever came to market. The first ever came to market. And we're going to talk about um, other currency options and a number of different things that you're probably not aware of that happened back in the 1980s. Joseph, uh, tell me how you and Bill Uchimoto came together to begin with. Joseph was, let me, let me preface this, back then, back in the 80s, Joseph was the uh, executive vice president, the head of the uh, Philadelphia Stock Exchange marketing department, and at the same time was the president of the Philadelphia Board of Trade. Bill Ujimoto was corporate attorney with them. So let me let you open it up, Joseph, and let's begin there. Thanks, Tom, and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, so, yeah, so Nick Giordano, who was president and CEO of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, hired me uh, early in 1985. And uh, as you know, Tom, prior to that, um, I was on the same side of the industry that you were in, and that was I was managing a big um, sales office for Thompson McKinnon uh, back then. And uh, I crossed the street and uh, went to work for the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. It was an incredibly innovative uh, period for stock exchanges back then. It was, it was uh, prior to that, stock exchanges really didn't compete for product. You know, they, they listed equities, they had um, options on individual equities. Um, everybody had their own turf. Uh, but at that period, um, the, the spirit of competition opened up wide for exchanges. And Philadelphia Stock Exchange has a long history of being an innovative exchange. Uh, actually, in 1790, they were the first exchange in the country. A lot of people don't know that. That was two years before the New York Stock Exchange uh, started, uh, uh, opened up uh, for uh, uh, trading in 1792. And the reason for that is, you know, really Philadelphia in the United States was the center of, of commerce. Um, but, yeah, you had the advent of the Erie Canal allowed ships to reach New York faster than Philadelphia, and the whole world changed for Philadelphia, and Philadelphia wind up taking a back seat to the New York Stock Exchange. Having said that, they had this innovative spirit. They had to find ways to stay in the game. And so hundreds of years later, when I went to work for them in 1985, that spirit still remained. And Nick Giordano, who was their leader back then, when he hired me, said that, this was a very important part, uh, a very important time for the Philadelphia Stock Exchange um, to find leadership again uh, in the financial industry. And uh, a couple of years before that, they had created options on currencies. I was involved in that because I was I sat on their uh, on their board and their committees that allowed me to help innovate that product. But in 1985, when he hired me, he planted the seed of an idea. Because mutual funds, particularly index mutual funds, which were created right in our backyard by the great Jack Bogle, who, by the way, passed away last week, an, an incredible uh, innovator in his own right, uh, created index funds in 1975. 1985, 
Um, they were still fledgling, only maybe $280, $290 million in assets under management. And he said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could find a way to take a mutual fund, particularly an index mutual fund, and have, have it look and feel like a stock and put it on a stock exchange. So that was my first, one of my real first projects to work, uh, that I had an opportunity to work on. And we put a team together to do it. In 1986, I think it was March of 1986, Nick Giordano plucked Bill out of the Securities and Exchange Commission, a very important hire because, remember, we were a securities exchange and we had to file all product development, any product that we developed, with the Security and Exchange Commission, either under the 34 Act or the 40 Act. And Bill Uchimoto, who is a 34 Act attorney, came to work for us. And Bill and I uh, became partners. He, was our, he, he became general counsel eventually at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. But he was assigned to work with me and my team on new products. And I remember, and Bill could, you know, add to this, when we started working together on, on, on these products, um, Bill would come into my office and say to me, Joseph, I think that's a great idea, but these are the reasons why I think we're going to have a problem doing that. And I used to say to Bill, Bill, I don't want to hear why we can't do it. I want, I want you to come back and tell me how we can do it. And Bill was very good at that and found ways in which we can craft the law in our favor and, and uh, uh, develop and launch a, a successful product like all of the sector products. That's how you and I became friends, Tom. You were working for Wheat First Securities. Right. And, and I remember coming to a roundtable and pitching uh, all of the regional firms on some of the products that we had listed options on, like gold and silver, uh, utilities, uh, semiconductors, all of those products, and that you found them fascinating, and you and I got attached at the hip. And you know, when we got involved in ETFs, you and I traveled the country together to promote the concept because you immediately uh, caught on to how powerful this product could be. Well, and go ahead. You see, Joseph, what what happened there with me was that I was running the option strategy department at Wheat First Securities. <laughs> And, you know, we, were, we had options on stocks and that type of thing. But when you guys came out with option on indexes like the, the uh, XAU and the SOX, you know, the semiconductors and the gold and that type of thing, that changed my world. And my world was where the, where the rubber met the road. That was with the advisor who then who would be talking to his, his customers to bring a new product that we could now actually trade options on an index rather than a stock itself. And that was and that was major. And that was the first thing that, like you said, brought you and I together, that I had the vision of marketing this type of thing as, as much as possible. But let me get, throw it back to you, Joe. Yeah, no, that, that's right, Tom. And, and, and um, so Bill and I hooked up in 1986. I was already, we were already working on this product. And by the way, um, the idea, I don't know, it, Nick Giordano had the idea I'm not sure where he got it. I'm not sure if it was maybe just his idea alone, but he, he put me in charge of basically putting that product together, and I needed a good attorney to work with, and it was Bill Uchimoto uh, and I who basically uh, worked with a team of people. There was a bunch of, a bunch of us involved in this product development 
um, and including yourself, Tom, we made you part of the team yep. uh, back in 1985-86, and the product eventually came to market in 1987. However, it had a little bit of a cloud over its head, uh, and we can get into that a little bit later. Bill, do you want to jump in here? Sure, sure. Th- thank you for all the accolades, too. And, Tom, it's a pleasure to uh, be on this podcast. But, again, I, I can remember everything as clear as day. And uh, uh, remember what, what happened there, October 19th, 1987. What happened there? Market the market crash. opens, and it has a horrendous crash. It, it went from a macro level down 519 points, which seems like an average day in December of last year. But, no, that was a 21% you know, decrease, a market crash. All stocks went down. And, therefore, what, what, what would have happened if you had an index mutual fund? Jack Bogle created them, but that is a product where you call your broker at the end of the day, or your, excuse me, the mutual fund at the end of the day, and say, I want out, and you get net asset value at the end of the day. That is not a trading product or a product that is flexible enough to handle immediate, you know, decisions in the marketplace. So, in other words, I would have, you know, gotten out 519 points and 21% less with a mutual index mutual fund, and that's the power I saw immediately of the product that we created, uh, which was cash index participations or SIPs. You know, that, that's what the product was. That I consider the first ETF. This is years before, five, six years before spiders, which is, you know, what is considered, you know, the modern format of it, but it's the same concept. A ba- index of stocks, a basket product, that could trade as easy as a common share of stocks, right? Another powerful thing is IBM stock options, you know, General Motors stock options. Obviously, what's the underlying? General Motors stock. What's the underlying of an index option, like an SPX or, you know, a, a S&P 500 index? There wasn't any. So, therefore, we were really toying around with creating the true underlying, something in a portfolio, a basket of stocks can trade as easy as 100 shares of stock, you know, an individual stock. That was the part of this product. Yeah, I think back then, Tom, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a while, guys. Well, you had two. Well, first, there, there, there were two symbols that actually traded on the Philadelphia Exchange. One was BIG, which was the Dow Jones, and SNP, yeah. which was the Standard Poor's. That's correct. Plain and simple, they yeah, traded. We- we we we, uh, we we reserved those symbols right away back in 1985 SMP and BIG, and then in '87 it came to market because it, it, to Bill's point it was a, you know this was a different animal and it took the SEC a little bit of time to get their arms around the product. The decision, if I recall, Joseph, was that you know we didn't think that the SMP was going to um, uh, license us because they you know they were already licensing it out to everybody else. We didn't think we could get it, so obviously. Well, yeah, you're right. I think they. they, 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 You're right. You're right. They had the OEX. They listed options on on the on the S and P 500 and the and the 100 um, at CBOE, and that's what we were concerned about. You're right. Let me just point out. So, in other words, we convinced them that this was such a new and innovative product because you know the first thing that their counsel said, the S and P or McGraw Hill's counsel. Who owned S and P at the time? They said you must convince us that this is something radically new. It's an innovative new financial product because we've already given the exclusive license out for the option. 
placebo. We gave it on the futures contract to the Merck. We also gave it, it to the mutual fund industry to Vanguard, right? So therefore, if that, this is something of the same ilk as one of those things, you know, we've already given that exclusive license out. So guess what? We had to convince them that, no, this is a radical new product. This is an index, you know, product that trades like a stock. It's none of the three of the above. Therefore, you know, this is new, and you could give us the license. And guess what? They agreed with that and, and, and gave us the license. Otherwise, And, and then they, 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 they said, we will never get exclusives out again because we did it in other areas, and that really backfired. So we're going to give you a non-exclusive license out on this index participation or this cash index participation fund. That, so, that's my recollection. And so what's the timeline yep. here? Is this all happening prior to the crash in 87, or is this at, right afterward? Well, no, but we started, no, we started, we started working on this. We had that license negotiated before the crash of 87. We started working on the product in 1985, and, and we brought it to market, we brought it to market after the crash of 87 by the time we got our approval. But all of the legwork, I mean, it took us over two years to get that product up and running. Right. And, and um, so it came after the crash of 87. Because after the crash of 87, the SEC came out with, what, the October 1987 market break report? Yeah. Basically, that, yeah, that was it. For yeah, new that was it. yeah they, I think they, they put a committee together. Um, what was his name? I can't remember his name that headed up the committee. Ruder? No, 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 no. It was it was a report. No, it was a practitioner um, that that ran the committee. Nicholas, um, can't think of his last name. But yeah, you're right, Ben. It was it was they put a group together to study the market crash. The the government's always pretty good about doing those kind of things after an event like that. Um, and uh, I, I they they um, and then they issued a report on it, but. From our point of view, um, I'm not going to say we ignored all of that. We had the idea working and incubating long before the 87 crash. So we filed in 88, right? And we knew we were ahead of the game and, 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 and did something novel because, unfortunately, when you file with the FEC, there is no confidentiality. All rule changes, which this was a rule change for new listing standards and a new product uh, offering by the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, had to be published, and it shows up in the Federal Register, which is you know you know just broadly public and disseminated, right? And therefore, guess what happened? What what happened, uh, Joseph, when it became public? What we were coming up with, you know? So the who, so the American what? so the <laughs> so the American Stock Exchange, which by the way. Um, had an, you know, an innovative group of people. We were fierce competitors. Um, and what they did was they took our filing, they copied our filing right down to the typo, and they created the, they, they created, and that's why we know they copied us because we had a typo in the filing. Right. And that's a true story. And, and sure enough, when, it appear, when, it, when the filing appeared in the Federal Register, um, we saw, you know, we saw that they copied us, um, and we both, Interestingly enough, we were both approved on the same day, and we both listed on the same day. We called our SIPs, cash index participation. They called them. They called theirs IPS, index participation. Um, so, to, to Tom's point, 
and and spiders, by the way, was the next generation of what we created. Um, and 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 Steve Bloom and and Nate Most, uh, the two individuals that were behind that product, deserve a tremendous amount of credit uh, for eventually bringing spiders to the market in 1992. But there was a step in between that, okay? And they get no credit either, and that was the Toronto Stock Exchange, which spent time with Bill and I and our team. After, after our product, um, so we were sued. Uh, the SEC was sued by the futures exchanges. The futures exchanges said that the SEC had no right to approve our product um, because it looked and felt like a future. And it's a famous decision. It's called the Easterbrook decision. Um, I probably could recite that decision verbatim, word for word. If you haven't read it, you ought to read it. And Judge Easterbrook, um, which was in the Seventh Circuit, right, Bill? That was the Seventh That's Circuit? That's correct. Yes. In the yes. yeah, Chicago Court in the United States Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit, based in Chicago. And what that, what that said was, what that said was, his decision, he said, well, SIPs had every element of a security. There was a small percentage, 1%, 2% of a future. And we were in their backyard. We were in the Futures Exchange's backyard um, in Chicago where that, where, where that appeal was heard, and, and he struck our product down. Um, while we were in that, involved in that, um, law, you know, the, the SEC was involved in that lawsuit. It was interesting. Uh, the SEC was sued, and all of the, not all of them, many of the mutual funds, like Vanguard, okay, filed amicus to that lawsuit, which means that they were friend, they were a friend of the suit of the futures exchanges because they didn't want to see an exchange-traded fund to come, come to market. So the mutual funds joined them in that lawsuit, um, and eventually it was struck down. And, and, and while that was happening, the Toronto Stock Exchange became very intrigued with what we were doing. And Bill, you probably remember this. They came down and spent some. They spent a couple of days with us, and they came up with their product called Tips. It was on the Toronto Index, and what they did differently than what we did, they actually put a a physical basket of stocks as the underlying, and they came up with, I would say, um, a a. Um, kind of a, a, a rough version of the creation-redemption process, which eventually became the genius behind um, exchange-traded funds, the whole redemption, uh, creative redemption process, which makes ETFs far more efficient from a tax point of view than, than um, uh, actual mutual funds. So, yeah, so, so they get no credit either. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you never, hear, you, never hear, you never hear the tips. And you know they they backed it with stock with the with the SIPs which was the Philadelphia you guys backed it with futures right? Well, no, no. Nope. We had a theoretical. Ours was created with a theoretical basket of stocks. Okay. Let me explain to you how this worked. And this was as again this was a couple of years in the making. We put a theoretical basket of stocks together, and we we had a bucket for dividends. We collected dividends and we would reinvest them. And 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 you know we work with we work with some really smart traders, 
And we wanted to make sure that the underlying, the actual physical price, by the way, Tom, you remember this because we, we, we tested this on you. At the time, I believe the S&P was, I'm going to say around $250, $260 in value. Right. So we, we took one-tenth of that price, made it a $26 stock, right? Exactly. Because, and, 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 you know, we felt that that was important, that it looked and felt like a stock. That's right. And, and what happened was you could, once a quarter, you had the ability as an investor to say, I want the net asset value of the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, right? And it, you did that uh, at the end of the quarter. And, and what we did was, we, I think, Bill, if I have this right, it was the opening value of the index the following day. And we would give that to any long holder of that index. What that did is it made sure that the price in the market stayed close to the underlying cash value of that index. So that's that's how ours that's how we developed ours. We didn't actually put the physical basket of stocks in place. We put a theoretical basket of stocks in place. Right. Well, yours yours. Uh, what what day? Do you remember what day that the uh, the BIG and SNP actually traded? So do you have the do you have the listing days of that? It was it was it. I, mean, it was I, I could get it. Uh, no, that's it was, okay. It was probably sometime Just, in 80, 89. But I here's the, here's here's the whole point, guys. The uh, whole point is that the BIG and SNP traded on the exchange, and it was the first one to trade. That's the whole idea. That's correct. They yeah. actually traded. The first one to actually, actually trade. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and again, the, then the lawsuits came in flying. Well, let me, uh, let, let me interject here, because I've got a couple other things I want to talk about. One of the things you know, I want to go back to, Joseph, is when you, when you were able to make that uh, cash index participation unit a $20 number, or, or, or $20 number for the indexes, yep. that changed the world. Because at that point in time, I said, I can sell this. And that really made, that really made the big difference. But I remember when you first brought options on foreign currencies. And the Philadelphia Exchange is the first one to do that also. And I want you to tell me a, a quick story about you and, and Bill Ojimoto, because I remember we were at the, uh, I can't think of the name of the club, Downtown in Philadelphia, having lunch. Well, it was the Union League. Yeah, um, Union sure. League. Yeah, yeah, Union League. And and you guys told me the story. So tell me the story about. It, it, well, well, I mean, so I was at the time I was working at Thompson McKinney, but I served on a very two very important committees of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. I was on their Foreign Currency Committee, and and I was on the I was on their um, uh, a product development committee, and it was December nineteen eighty two. Um, that that uh, Philadelphia got the approval to list options on the British pound, and then of course um, all the major currencies followed: Swiss franc, um, Japanese yen, uh, French franc, um, and it, it really put Philadelphia on an international scale. That's that's really how I got to know Nick Giordano very well. Um, he, you know, Rich Nick was he was an innovative thinker, and he reached out for people. In the industry, my firm was a member of the exchange. We had a big options presence on the floor. And so um, what it took to, to – the story we told um, uh, uh, to you, Tom, was 
it really it, it took an act of Congress for the Philadelphia Stock Stock Exchange to list an option on a currency. So let me explain why that is. I, I don't want to get too long in the tooth, but when, when I was talking with you guys, Bill came to you and said, we can't list them. Yeah. And you said what? Yes. And you said well, what? Well, no. Well, 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 counsel, and I'm not sure if it was Bill, but the, 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 what counsel said is, we, you, we're not going to be able to list options on currencies. So what Nick Giordano said, okay, again, the leader, he said, well, then we got to change the law. Okay, and, and that's what happened. So there was testimony in front of Congress, and uh, it was written into the Shad Johnson Accord um, that, op, that, that currencies were no longer uh, considered just a commodity, but they were also committed, uh, considered as security, and therefore the Philadelphia Stock Exchange got, got, the, got the law, was able to get the law yeah. changed to list options on currency. Yes, I remember. You know, even in, in the... In the uh in the first ETF, we traveled the country giving lectures on uh, how that worked, and uh, we had a great time. We must have gone to 25 different venues and uh, explained to advisors this new product that they're going to be able to use, and they absolutely loved it. One more and we question. Sold out every, and we sold out everywhere we went. Everywhere we went. One more question, Joseph. Flash crash. Yeah. Joseph Rosello is a former uh, CEO of the National Stock Exchange, and... Uh, you were there, you were at CEO then at the first flash crash that we actually had. Now what you're seeing is a lot of money managers blaming the flash crash or fast trading on why they underperform. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, that's, that's you know, to me it's disappointing. Um, most recently, Tom, in the last quarter where, you know, um, from an all-time high in the S&P, to um, in, in 2018, off that high, we, we had a 20% correction uh, sometime in December, and I think they called it, our industry is great at this, they called it uh, the Christmas Eve massacre. <laughs> but anyway, um, it, you know, it's sad to hear knowledgeable people, and many of them money managers, you know, sort of putting the, their negative performance here uh, and blaming it on the algorithmic trading systems that have been developed in recent years. And I will tell you, in my view, that the U.S. equity markets remain are today one of the most efficient, if not the most efficient market in the world. And these algorithmic traders play a critical role in placing liquidity into the marketplace. Quite frankly, uh, market structure has evolved dramatically in the last 10 to 12 years for the better. And in my view, the playing field has been leveled for in favor of the retail investor. Um, so, you know, markets, markets were inefficient for years. Technology has made them more, in, more efficient. And quite frankly, Machines and there's people behind these machines. The difference is they're no longer specialists, humans on trading floors that have to react to market market conditions. So it, you have people, smart people, who come out of who come out of business school or who have the practical knowledge with a strong math background and computer engineering. 
and they managed those two skills, and they replaced the human by creating these bots, these robots, okay? And these robots are, in order to be, in, in order to be an algorithmic trader, you had to write your own program. And, and, and what they do is they react to markets. So this notion that, that what we saw in the last quarter of 2018 was caused by these machines is a terrible misnomer. And, and it's sad that professionals that are, that are well-schooled are looking for excuses why there was negative performance in the marketplace. The fact of the matter Tom, and you say this better than anyone. I have no idea why the market wanted to go down. There were more sellers than buyers, and the market went down. And thank God, I say this seriously, that we had, we had these algorithmic traders that were placing bids, okay, so that you, you may not like the price you got, but if you wanted to get out, you had the ability to get out. Let's, let's go back to 1987. What did they do in 1987? What did the humans do in 1987 to, uh, uh, to... They didn't answer their phones. They folded up <laughs> they, they, they didn't pick their phones up, they and they shut phone. their systems down, and yes. it caused a one-day 22.5% decline in the Dow Jones, 21% perhaps in, in the S&P. It, you want to talk about a scary time? And guess what? The market's closed. There was nowhere you can sell your stock or buy the stock if you wanted to. So there, the, I, I want to say it again. The U.S. equity markets, while they're not perfect, in 2018 are the most, one of the most, if not the most efficient markets in the world. And you know what? A lot of these traders and professionals, particularly the hedge fund, hedge fund folks, they don't like efficient markets. It takes the edge away from them. And that's why you, if you look who's complaining, you'll see that a lot of them are complaining about this. And the other thing is, I, I, just, I get these reports, these quarterly reports, because we're in the business of managing people's money, and I'm reading a lot of the stuff, and everybody's saying, oh, algorithmic traders. It <laughs> exacerbated volatility. It caused a lot of the problems. That is a false statement. Having said that, in my view, it's a false statement. I'd like to hear what Bill has to say. Having said that, Tom, the exchanges need to do a better job in defending their turf. You know, I, they're, they're out there putting statements, but they got to defend their turf a little bit better. I don't, I don't have an ax to grind. I am no longer, I am no longer, uh, you know, a member of um, uh, an executive of a stock exchange. Um, I'm a chairman of, an, of, of a, a registered investment advisor that, that manages people's wealth, and I will tell you that we do our best to enlighten our clients not to pay attention to that kind of noise. Got it. You know, when you think back to when I was a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch in the mid-'70s, the spreads that, we, that I had to deal with uh, were uh, you could drive a truck through them. <laughs> well, that's right, Tom. When I came into business, you and I, you and I are old-timers. I mean, there were quarter-point spreads. Think about that, a 25-cent 20, spread. Some years later, they went to an eighth spread, right? So, you know, you know, 12 and a half cents. Then they went to an eighth, six and a quarter cents, and they stayed there. And think about that. Six and a quarter cents spread between the bid and the offer. And then in 2001, they went to a penny. Okay? That's, that's a huge difference. So the markets are incredibly efficient. And as a matter of fact, the playing field has been leveled in favor of the retail investor. 
Well, I want to leave it at that. I mean, that was a great conversation today. We set the record straight. And uh, I think it's great to leave on a note that uh, the individual investor is well served by the exchanges. Uh, and, you know, and in fact, NASDAQ now owns the Philadelphia Stock Exchange and Dorsey Wright and & Associates. And uh, I think they do a fantastic job. Great. Thank you. So thank, thank you, you guys for coming. Thank you, Ben, for sitting in here. I know it was a little bit, Alert a lot of it was a little bit before your time. but <laughs> It was. But I learned something. Thank you, guys. All right. Then we'll see you later.